a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Welcome back, everyone, to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Great to be with you today. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. And uh, in these next two segments, uh, we're going to go to one of our inside sources. We're going to go to McKay Coppins, uh, who is a staff writer for The Atlantic. Uh, he just did a feature story uh, on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Uh, it is a deep dive look. Uh, into the church and its history, its connection uh, to America, and its outreach to the world. And uh, I had the opportunity earlier this morning, uh, just shortly after the uh, piece went live on the Atlantic's website, theatlantic.com, and uh, it was really a fascinating conversation with McKay, as uh, he is a member of the church, and uh, for him to have to wear both a journalistic hat uh, and uh, his faith experience. And he shared a lot of his personal journey through uh, through much of the piece. And so I, I began by asking McKay uh, the origin of the piece. The, the title is interesting in that it is it's titled The Most American Religion. Excuse me, and how uh, the church is tied to the story of America, uh, even in a time when the church continues to expand so significantly internationally. The kind of origin of this piece was in a conversation that I had with our editor in chief at the Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, who, you know, has always been fascinated by the faith and uh, had kind of been saying ever since I joined the Atlantic uh, a number of years ago that he wanted me to write about it at some point for the magazine. And he said, you know, it feels like there are all these elements of Mormonism, of of the Latter-day Saint kind of ethos, that are quintessentially American. And kind of the conceit of the piece was that a lot of those things that the Latter-day Saints have modeled, you know, communitarianism, shared sacrifice, things like uh, taking care of your neighbor and all of that, basically, that whole ethos is sort of starting to become endangered in America right yeah. now. And so he wanted to know, you know, where does this come from? Why are Latter-day Saints kind of clinging to it? And are there kind of lessons in what he calls the Mormon story that could be interesting to Americans right now? Other writers, and you know, scholars, most notably Harold Bloom several decades ago, have made the point that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is an authentically American institution. And what I wanted to look at was kind of where that comes from. And, and I kind of weave in my own personal experiences with the faith throughout to try to give it texture and, and show what it's like to be a member of this church and, and what we learn and what we kind of demonstrate uh, in our lives and, and how that kind of has a ripple effect throughout the country. So uh, as you get into this piece, and I, I encourage you to give it a good read, and again, it's uh, it's really written for... Uh, those of the Atlantic, uh, of their readership. Uh, so it's not really, uh, one of the things McKay really stressed was that this was not written for a particular audience other than the Atlantic's audience, uh, which primarily is not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, but I asked him, I said, as you look at the history of the church, uh, of course, uh, there were a lot of things early on where the, the church was seen as un-American, 
Uh, and now it seems that, a, that the country has drifted from a lot of those founding principles uh, that seem to be interwoven between uh, the church and uh, the American spirit, the American dream. Uh, so I asked him to, to tell and share what he learned about that in the process. What I think is interesting is that from the very beginning of the faith, you know, almost as soon as Joseph Smith started to attract converts, Mormons were derided as sort of un-American, mm-hmm. right? They, they were seen as uh, for various reasons, a threat to democracy, a threat to the American experiment. But at the same time, Joseph Smith and subsequent church leaders and Latter-day Saints always believed that the faith's success was kind of tangled up or connected with the success of the American experiment, right? Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, the church did try to kind of model the highest ideals of the country, and the, the effort was to kind of be accepted as part of the fabric of America, and that was always a struggle, right? Certainly in the early years when Latter-day Saints were being chased from state to state and, uh, you know, eventually driven out of the country and had to be forced to kind of settle in the desert, that was especially true. But even in subsequent decades and in various times in American life, Mormons were still sort of seen as kind of peculiar outsiders, right? And so as we tried to assimilate as a people, I do think we kind of, in some ways deliberately and in some ways kind of unconsciously, came to model a lot of these elements of Americanism. And what's kind of ironic is that I think Latter-day Saints finally sort of succeeded just as the country was starting to question whether those things were still valuable. So I mentioned community, that's one of them. But it's kind of this whole Norman Rockwellian ideal, service, family, patriotism, caring for immigrants and refugees. Um, All these things that are now kind of fundamental to the Latter-day Saint ethos used to be fundamental to the American ethos, but now it feels like we're at a point in our country where all these things are up for debate, right? All these things are are being re-examined. And so Latter-day Saints find themselves in this strange situation where we've assimilated to a country that may no longer exist. <laughs> right. Um, and, and what, you know, we have to figure out what the third century of our faith will look like if, if that continues to be the case, if we're still going to be these outsiders. So one of the interesting things that I got to ask McKay about was, again, he was focusing very much on this American component uh, and connection, obviously the founding of the church uh in uh, upstate New York and those early things 200 years ago. Uh, but now, of course, it's a, it's very much an international church with an international reach in so many ways. And so uh, I asked him about this uh, very foundational American principle uh, that the church still stands for in, in taking care of refugees and uh, what that really meant. And, and he actually had an interesting exchange uh, with uh, M. Russell Ballard, who is the uh, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This was uh, fascinating to hear this. One of the things I wanted to look into was why American Latter-day Saints, although, you know, generally politically conservative and aligned with the Republican Party, seemed to break with some in their party and some of the broader religious right on issues like immigration and refugees. I, I talked to, uh, to Elder Ballard about this, and he obviously is a descendant of Hiram Smith, who was killed and along with Joseph Smith was martyred. And at first, I, I thought it was interesting because when he talks about the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram Smith, it's not like a historical event for him. It, it feels like almost a raw family tragedy, mm-hmm. you know? He really feels the emotion of it yeah. and feels the emotion of 
the the early persecution of the Latter-day Saints. He said, you know, we really were refugees. And he kind of made the point that a lot of the uh, the Latter-day Saint attitudes toward refugees and immigrants uh, today are rooted in that history. Because we, you know, we all, anyone in the church knows that you grow up hearing the stories about Missouri and, you know, Martin Van Buren refusing to, to help and the saints being cast out of various places and eventually driven into the unsettled territory beyond America's borders. You you hear all these stories and, and they're kind of woven into the Latter-day Saint DNA. And so when you, for example, hear about a proposal from somebody who's running for office to ban immigration from Muslims, you know, there there's a visceral response to that. And there's an aversion to that. And Elder Ballard kind of uh, made the point that, you know, we, we we as a people are a refugee people and we care about refugees. And So he, he went on to talk about a uh, something that President Ballard shared with uh, him as it relates to an interaction he had with a refugee. He told an interesting story to me. He actually, uh, a couple of years ago, toured a refugee camp in Greece and was there when a Syrian family was kind of flung from a dinghy into the ocean and they kind of washed up on shore and you know obviously they're wet and cold and and the volunteers at this refugee camp were attending to them and he met their their son a little nine-year-old boy named Amir and and the boy had just been given a little uh, packet of Oreo cookies obviously they were hungry they gave him these Oreo cookies and when Amir uh, met Elder Ballard, he immediately offered one of the cookies to Elder Ballard, the first one in the in the package. And Elder Ballard said that was a really moving experience to him. And he actually kept the cookie and brought it back to Salt Lake. And it sits in a plastic cube on his desk in his office to remind him uh, of the experience of these refugees, the people running for their lives all over the world, is how he put it to me, and, and the importance to continue to help them and to, to reach out to them. All right, stay with us. Uh, When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with McKay Coppins from The Atlantic. Uh, Much, much more to come here on KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Utah's source for exclusive access and insights behind the news. Here's the opinion page editor of the Deseret News, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to continue my conversation with McKay uh, Coppins. Uh, McKay is a staff writer for The Atlantic. Uh, he has done a deep dive uh, piece on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is probably the most significant piece I can think of from a a national publication, especially an East Coast publication, uh, probably back uh, to when President Gordon B. Hinckley uh, was on 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace. Uh, So this is a significant piece and a significant opportunity. Uh, I asked McKay this morning, uh, I said, you know, you you set up this project, uh, this interview uh, with President Nelson, 
uh, president of the church, uh, all before the pandemic, all before all the different upheavals of 2020. Uh, so I asked him to tell us what it was like uh, in terms of challenges and opportunities uh, in setting up and having that interview with President Russell M. Nelson. The interview with President Nelson, I will say that I, I've been working for a long time on setting up this interview. And as you know, presidents of the church, each president of the church has kind of a different approach and a different style. And, you know, at least in recent years, presidents of the church don't spend a ton of time uh, with long sit-down interviews with journalists. They <laughs> they have other things to do. Um, <laughs> right, right. So it, it, was, it was kind of a feat to even pull off the interview. And I arranged it all before the pandemic started. Mm. And then once the pandemic started, it, it kind of created a whole new set of challenges, right? Yeah. Um, you know, at the time, President Nelson was 95 years old. He's now 96. You know, we did, we certainly I didn't want to do anything that would endanger his health. Uh, but to his credit and to the credit of, you know, the, the kind of church apparatus that worked on this, they felt like it was important to honor their commitment to, to go through with the interview. President Nelson felt that way. And, and so I did. I went out in uh, early spring and flew out to Salt Lake and interviewed him. You know, they did have various precautions to make sure that it was safe and, and that everybody was healthy. And, but it was it was a strange experience, I will say, interviewing President Nelson in Temple Square, which was shut down in a church administration building that was otherwise vacant, um, <laughs> you know, sitting in a conference room very far apart from each other so that uh, we were well, well distanced. Uh, the, the, there were a lot of kind of strange and memorable experiences, but uh, he ended up giving me uh, an, an hour of his time, which uh, was very generous of him. And uh, we, we covered a lot and you'll, you'll read about it in the piece, but, you know, we covered everything from some of the tensions within the faith over, you know, gender and LGBT issues to the faith's emphasis on uh, charitable giving and community, how the church was responding to uh, the, the pandemic, and some interesting personal insights. I got into President Nelson where he, he actually, toward the end of the interview, started to kind of talk about how he thought he would be judged when the time came, how God would judge him, which uh, was obviously kind of a really uh, a notable uh, moment, and, and I appreciated his his kind of candor there. Yeah, you can read about that in the piece. You know, I <laughs> I think a lot of people say this, so it may even sound trite to say, but it is remarkable how kind of sharp and energetic he is, given his age. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, <laughs> nearing a hundred years old, right? I don't. I mean, most of the people that you know who are that old are not you know, not sitting in conference rooms for long interviews with journalists. And, you know, he, he, he was very good at, you know, answering uh, all the questions I threw at him. Some of them were, you know, I didn't, I didn't pull any punches. I asked some tough questions. He also, uh, I, I thought it was interesting just because I hadn't spent, you know, a lot of time with President Nelson before, but he, he's kind of prone to these enthusiastic tangents about, um, about the human body. He's obviously, you know, he has a medical background. He's a pioneering. Uh, <laughs> you can you can tell that he's, he's very, you know, very sharp, very with it, and his mind is constantly working, and yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, I had to remind McKay that I've uh, been chasing that 96-year-old uh, on some of these uh, global ministry tours, uh, and not only is he uh, sharp and healthy, uh, he moves at an incredible pace that uh, puts most of us to shame. Uh, and so he uh, it was just an interesting uh, little bit of insight there from McKay. Uh, one of the questions that I was just dying to ask McKay, uh, knowing how these things can be so tricky, 
was about the balance. How does he, as a member of the faith uh, and a journalist uh, on the East Coast, uh, how does he balance all of that? And what were the challenges that he experienced? Did they surprise him? We knew from the beginning that this would be kind of a strange situation, a challenge that I'd have to address in working on this piece, right? Like, uh, <laughs> it is not the case that there are very many, um, you know, devout Latter-day Saints writing about the church and the national media. And, of course, my 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 typical area of coverage is, is national politics, right? right? So. Right. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, you know, a religion beat writer uh, by any stretch. What we decided from the very beginning was to just be very transparent about that. That like, it, it wouldn't make sense for me to try to write a long, in-depth treatment of the church without kind of making my own experience as part of the story. And, and I think there's also, it, it, you know, in the recent past, been a tendency with some Latter-day Saint writers to when they're writing about the church, feel like they have to overcompensate, kind of swing the pendulum the other way right. and go out of their way to, to, you know, take all these different shots at the church to prove that they're independent and objective. And I didn't really want to do either of those. So I, I ended up just being very kind of uh, personal and vulnerable. In the, I, I will say up front that it was kind of uncomfortable um, for me because I, I am not generally a personal essayist. I don't spend most of my time writing about myself. And right. so this was a kind of different position for me to be in. And, and my editors actually pushed me to do more of it because they thought it was uh, important. So one of the real driving forces of uh, doing this kind of piece, again, in the Atlantic, uh, a really unique uh, space for that. Uh, but one of the real driving forces was that this is the 200th anniversary. Uh, it's been celebrated uh, by members of the faith uh, as the year that uh, Joseph Smith uh, received that first vision that was really the uh, ushering in of uh, a church that would be and now uh, would expand around the world, 16 million members. Uh, and so it's 200 years in. And so I asked McKay, I said, now keeping your journalism hat on uh, and everything that you've learned through the process of this project, uh, I asked him to project forward. And uh, what should we be watching for uh, again, as a journalist, uh, what would journalists be watching for for the next hundred years? Well, you know, obviously we're at a moment, certainly in America and much of the Western world, where religiosity is declining. The current generation, the rising generation, is much less religious than previous generations. Uh, church going is declining. And so I think that the church is going to be focused a lot on retaining its members and making sure that, you know, the millennial generation and the generation that follows it uh, are kept in the faith and are able to relate to the faith and, you know, remain strong members. Because that, that really is the, the church is its people, right? The future of the church is going to depend on its members remaining uh, faithful. And so far, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has actually been much more successful than most other faith traditions in America in retaining its members. Part of that is because it continues to convert hundreds of thousands of people every year, and part of it is because its members are slightly less likely to uh, walk away from the faith than a lot of other faiths. But the, I do think a lot of the focus is going to be on how do we keep people strong in the Church? How do we make sure that this is relatable to them, that it's that it's something that they feel is important and vital to their identity. And uh, I think that that'll probably be uh, both here in America and throughout the world, uh, a big focus of the church. 
I closed out my conversation with McKay Coppins, a staff writer for The Atlantic, uh, with the, the therefore what question. Uh, what did he learn? Uh, what should we all learn? Uh, lessons that are not just for members of the faith, uh, but for America, where he really began this uh, this whole article. Uh, what are those uh, critical principles uh, that everybody should be thinking about? You know, we started this conversation talking about the faith as kind of an authentically American or quintessentially American tradition. And You know, whether you're a member of the church or not, I hope that we come away thinking about taking lessons not just for Mormonism, but for America, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I do think that, you know, we're in a period of great division. We're in a period of great tumult in public life. And I do think that there are elements of the American experiment, things that were foundational to the American experiment, things like community, faith, taking care of each other, democracy. These ideals are really important. And I hope that if there's anything that people can glean from the Latter-day Saint story, it's that those ideals can still be preserved and that they are being preserved in various corners of the country. And maybe maybe we can kind of discover a, a renewed interest in them as we are in this period of transition in American life. Again, that's my uh, interview with McKay Coppins, staff writer at The Atlantic. A fascinating piece that went up online. You can read that at The Atlantic. We've also got that on our Facebook page today. You can also hear my entire interview with McKay Coppins on Therefore What, our Therefore What podcast, and uh, get some of the additional behind-the-scenes uh, things as he went through the process uh, of writing this story. Really fascinating stuff today. All right, we're going to go ahead and step aside for a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll round out our day with some other principles, principles learned for both political parties from the Boston Tea Party. Stay with us. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.